scripture passage this morning is John chapter 14, first seven verses. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1675. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Here now the reading of God's word. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to his people. We pray with me. Father, prepare our hearts for these comforting words, these challenging words. Help us, Lord, as your people to know that what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us is so much deeper, so much greater, so much more than we can even fathom or imagine. That we could call you Father and that we could know there is a home waiting for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a couple of situations or circumstances I'd like you to think about that bring to us a sort of emotional response. Um, One of them is the feeling you get when, um, well, we could put it both ways. When you're a child and you're lost in a crowd, separated from your parents, or the way the parent feels when they're in a crowd and separated from the child. It's not a good feeling, is it? Brings a lot of nervousness and fear to our minds. Or uh, maybe, let's say, the feeling that you have when you realize you're lost and you don't know how to get back home. It's not a good feeling. And the last one is, is one that I hope none of you have experienced, but it's one that many people have. And it's the experience of someone going missing and never being found. I saw recently a small short video of of a woman who talked about the sort of emotional turmoil that she has gone through over the last 30 years of having lost her child and there's never been any closure, no body found, no nothing, just gone. Maybe you're wondering, why is it that these things are the the things that I'm sort of bringing to mind? Well, it's because that here at this moment, when Jesus is with his disciples, 
at the Last Supper, and he's beginning to enter into his, what is often called, farewell discourse, he's already begun to talk about some things like, I'm leaving. Where you are going, you cannot come with me. I'm going to be gone. You will not see me. And to the disciples, this is concerning. This is discomforting. It's like the kind of emotion that you experience when you're separated from your family in a crowded place. You're beginning to feel like you don't know where they're going. You don't know how you're going to be able to see them again. You don't know what's going to happen. So here in this moment, Jesus, rather than being uh, like he could be and sort of whacking the disciples over the head for their thick-headedness and not understanding the great redemptive plan of God, does something a little different. Here in this moment, it's more like Jesus speaking to his little children. And he's saying, don't you worry. I'm going away for a little while. But I need to. Because where I'm going to, that's your home. And I have to prepare a place for you. He's comforting them. That's why our theme this morning is Christ comforts his disciples by showing them the way home. They're lost. And he comforts them by showing them the way home. I'm going to look at three things this morning. The troubled hearts of the disciples that we hear about in verse 1. And then the Father's house which is described for us in verses 2 and 3. And then finally, the way home described for us in verses 4 through 7. So first of all, let's look at the troubled hearts. In verse 1, Jesus, after describing what he has to go and do upon the cross, that he has to go and he has to die. And Peter, after saying, Jesus, I won't let you die, I'm going to die for you. And after the moment in which Jesus predicts Peter's denial... He then turns and he says to all the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. It's a beautiful phrase. It's one that speaks of the heart as the inner person. It is the very central person. It is from which, Proverbs tells us, all the things of life flow, and we're called to guard it. And here, the disciples are being instructed by Jesus that even in the midst of this turmoil, even in the midst of realizing that he is about to go and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and blood is going to be dripping from his face, in the midst of the fact that Jesus knows that a group of Roman soldiers is going to come, and he's going to take him away, and the the, are going to be scattered, he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. I mean, to me, this is a perfect expression of the selfless love of Christ. He should be concerned about himself, what he is about to endure, what he is about to experience. He's going to have the wrath of hell put upon him for our sins, and he's thinking about us. His disciples. He's saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
Dear brothers and sisters, are your hearts troubled this morning? Are your hearts troubled because you don't know what's going to happen next? You don't know how you're going to deal with this tragedy. You don't know how you're going to deal with the turmoil that has come upon your life. The stress, the overwhelming burden of all your responsibilities and duties. You don't know what you're going to do. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have a Savior who is your only comfort in life and in death. And by union with Him, you are a sharer in all His benefits. You have more than you need. You need only simply ask and reach out with the hand of faith and find that you have what you need to face whatever it is that you are facing in life. Whatever our Heavenly Father has brought upon us in this veil of tears. Let not your heart be troubled. Christ continues his encouragement, his instruction to the disciples by saying, trust in God. Trust also in me. That is to say that here Christ is speaking to a bunch of Jewish men who have been called their entire lives to entrust themselves to the covenant God, Yahweh. And here in this moment, Christ is saying, trust in God, yes, but trust also in me. We see here the great, wonderful picture of the union between father and son. Both are God. Both are to be trusted. The Christ is the image of the invisible God. And here, as Christ has walked amongst these men, these disciples for the last three years, he's proven himself over and over again to be trustworthy, to be one that you can count on, to be one that you can hold on to, to be one that you can place your bets on, so to speak. And the same, I believe, can be said of all of us here. We all have moments, we all have testimonies, we all have stories, we all have things that we can share to express to one another the trustworthiness of God, the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. That if he can do this in my life, then you can trust him. Trust in God, trust also in Christ. Believe in God, believe also in me. Christ is calling us to this this morning as he did his disciples so many years ago to an ongoing trust in him. He's telling the disciples that in the next moments, in the next hours, as you see me prayed, as you see me carried off, as you see me mocked and spit on, as you see the crown of thorns crushed down around my head, as you see me whipped as you see me carrying my own death instrument to the top of Golgotha, as you see me hanging from the tree, as you see me breathe my last, it is not over. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Finally, let's look at next, let's look at the Father's house. It's not simply that Christ calls his disciples to a blind trust or a trust that's not rooted in anything. 
The comfort is rooted in a very solid reality. In verse 2, Christ continues, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. These are great, comforting, wonderful words for us as the people of God. That there's a place for us. There's a place for us. It's a comfort because so often in this world, as our Christian worldview, as our Christian beliefs and convictions rub up against the enemy and the devil, and we seem so out of place, we seem so different, so weird, as we find comfort in the fellowship of each other, as we rub up against the temptations and the flesh that we continue to struggle against and with, we want to know that there's a place for us. Do we not? We want to know that there's a place where we truly belong. Where we truly matter. Where we have purpose. A place that we are meant to be. And here on the eve of Christ's crucifixion, he is telling his disciples, you do. You do have a place. He's telling his disciples that in a short while, you're going to be a group of men without a rabbi. You're going to wonder, what's your identity? You're going to wonder, what's your purpose? You're going to wonder, what were we doing the last three years? You're going to wonder, is there a place for us? Is there a purpose for us? Is this where we belong? And Christ is telling the disciples, there's a place for you. I go there to prepare it for you. Where was Jesus going? That's a question that we could ask. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. This idea of the Father having a house is one that's littered throughout all of Scripture. In fact, this morning we read Psalm 90 as they're called to worship. And we sang, O God, our help in ages past from the Psalter. And that psalm begins with the statement that God is our dwelling place. And that's what it's talking about here. But all of redemptive history, including the Garden of Eden, the, 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 the purpose was that there would be a place where people made in God's image could dwell with God. That didn't work. Cast out of the garden. Then there was a tabernacle, a place where God could dwell with his people, where God could be in the presence of his people. There could be communion with his people. That didn't work. Then there was a temple, a temple where God's people could dwell with him, where God's people could gather and be in his presence, dwell in his presence. That didn't work. So what's going to happen now? How are we going to have dwelling with God? How are we going to have a home in him? How are we going to be with our God that we are meant to have communion with. And John in his gospel opens up with these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Tabernacle among us. And here in these comforting words to Christ's disciples, he's saying, there is a dwelling place 
for you. There is a place in which you can be in communion and fellowship with your God. And there are many rooms. There are many dwelling places here. Many of you probably are familiar with the King James translation here. It says there are many mansions. And that's, of course, confused a lot of people. But the purpose here is not the size of these mansions. The purpose here is not to say that there are some people who get little tiny mansions and some people who get great and glorious mansions. The purpose here is to say that Jesus is saying, there's enough room for all of my disciples. There's enough room for everyone of whom I am dying for. There will not be a no vacancy sign in heaven. There's room for everyone who comes to Christ in the Father's house. Where Christ is going, where he may be describing here, is what he has come to do. In his crucifixion, in his resurrection, and his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father, we have a change that occurs in the eternal place. Can you believe that? And that change is there is a sufficient sacrifice now in the dwelling place of God. The psalmist talks about it when he says, Open you gates and let the Lord of glory come in. That is that when Christ ascended and stood at the right hand of the Father and he presented himself to the Father as the perfect and final sacrifice for his people, God said, now the place has been prepared. The place has been prepared that people... Sinners like you and me may come in. God is our dwelling place. Christ goes to the heavenly dwelling place. He prepares it for us. It's the same dwelling place that we go to when we die here in this life and escape our bodies. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about how it's better for us to be away from the body and to be with the Lord, to take off this tent, this temporary blessing, this temporary situation. But it's also the same dwelling place that we know is going to come down from heaven as the new Jerusalem and create the new heavens and the new earth where we will all dwell together not as soulless, disembodied spirits, but as resurrected people, body and soul, and mind, and everything. That's where Christ goes. Why is he going? Because we cannot enter the presence of a holy God without a sacrifice for our sins. He's that sacrifice. And even now, in this very moment, we're told that Christ is interceding for us, for his people. That he, here, right now, in the moment, he's in the heavenly throne room, seated at the right hand of God. He's our advocate with the Father. And he's saying, they belong here because they are in me. Because their, their sins are forgiven because of my work. When will he come back? He tells the disciples, 
If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus here is not speaking of his resurrection following his death in which he spends time with the disciples. What he's talking about here is the day of the Lord. The day in which Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead, as the Ark Creed says. So what we're told by God's word is that we're not supposed to sit around and ponder, maybe it'll be this year. We're not supposed to guess that it's going to be in the next 10 years and start selling buckets full of burritos and safety and things like that. We're not supposed to be pondering about what this blood moon means or what that means or what these signs and these symbols are supposed to be pointing to, what we're supposed to do is know that Christ is coming again and live our lives as we believe that. And to always be prepared, whether it is tomorrow, whether it is right now, or whether it is a hundred years from now, Christ will come again. He's promised us this. And he tells us that the purpose of his coming again is so that he may bring us to be with him forever. This is meant to be a comfort to his disciples. Only hours before his death, he tells them, you belong. There's a place for you. He says to them, I must go to prepare this place for you. And then he promises his disciples, much like he did so at the Great Commission when he said, Lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age, that do not fret, that there will be a day of reckoning where all men will be judged by what they've done. And the comfort that you must have, as our Heidelberg Catechism says, is that very judge to condemn and to judge all men upon this earth is the very judge who was judged for you in your place. I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. It's comforting to me to know that whatever we may experience in this life, whatever hardships we may face, whatever besetting sins that we may struggle against in our lives, whatever whatever fears and doubts we may face, that one day all of that shall come to an end and we will not a one of us say it was not worth it. Not a one of us will say, why this? Why that? But as we are gathered as the people of God in the dwelling place of God with Christ our Lord, we will sing a new song. We will have tears that will be wiped away. Of course, here's Christ sort of giving a road now. 
maybe Google Map instructions to this place where he's going, where he's talked about. I must leave. I cannot stay here. You can't, where I'm going, you cannot come with me. This place that I've been talking about is my father's house. Wait, God has a house in the promised land? That's what some of the disciples are thinking, right? What's his address? We know this because Christ ends his discussion of the Father's house by saying, you know the way to the place where I'm going. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And of course, Thomas, great Thomas, doubting Thomas, I think he gets a hard name. I think we really should not be holding that against him. It's a great story, but Thomas is much more than just doubting Thomas. Thomas is one who is concerned to really truly understand what Christ is saying, what his rabbi is saying. And he says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? We don't understand what you're talking about here, this dwelling place with God, your father's house. It has many rooms. And you say, we know where you're going And the way, how can we know the way if we don't even know where you're going to? In essence, Thomas is saying, how can I know the Google map directions if I don't have the address to plug in? Jesus' answer is one we all know, it's one we're familiar with, it's one probably recited over and over again this great verse of the exclusivity of Christ and his salvation. He says to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But what I want to do this morning, what I want to do this morning is help us to maybe see ways in which we may have isolated this verse from its surrounding context and simply pulled it out to stamp it on greeting cards in the front of really nice gift journals at Christian bookstores and things like that. Or maybe even simply as a proof text that we just plug and say, well, Jesus is the only way to salvation. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But what is really being said here to Thomas and to the other disciples is much more profound than that. It's much deeper than that. What Christ here is saying is that the way home for the disciples, the way to the place that they belong, the reason that they should not have troubled hearts is not a list of instructions. These are the commandments that you must follow. It's not an address that says plug this in and you can walk there. What is amazing about what Christ is saying is that he's saying the way to the place, Jesus, the way to the place, the way to the home of the Father is not a direction east, north, south, west. It's a person. It's the person, Jesus Christ, the God-man. The way home is in him. Carrie, what are you saying? What I'm saying is 
But the New Testament speaks of the mystery of being united with Christ. By faith, we have union with Him. And it is in that union with Him that we find ourselves worthy of the presence of God. Not on our own merit. Not on our own goodness. Not on our own good works. But in Christ. In Him. That's why Paul can say that as we walk around this earth and as we go from place to place and as we gather and worship and as we are physically here, he can say we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Set our mind on things that are above with Christ where we are united in Him with our communion with Him. We have union with Christ and by union with Christ we have fellowship with God. The way home is Him. The way home is in Him. These are things that we need to hear, people of God. He answered Thomas, and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, by me. Can I ask you, brothers and sisters, Are you lost? Are you struggling to find a way when so many ways and options are open to us in this life? Let me speak to you again and say, Christ is the way. Christ is the way not only to our heavenly dwelling place in which we belong, but Christ is the way for all the things that we experience in this life. If you are being waved and pushed around by by the ups and downs of this life, if you need an anchor, Christ is the way. Anchor yourself in Him. The truth. Can I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you beginning to become confused? What is the truth? What is the lie? How many lies are being thrown at us in this life in advertisements on TV and radio? How many lies are being thrown at us about what will really make us happy and what will really bring us belonging and hope and peace? Are you being bombarded by all the lies and you're wondering what is the truth? Christ is the truth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you beginning to feel like you're wasting away? Like each and every day, you're dying a little bit more inside, outside. You're wrecked with worries and thoughts and insecurities. You struggle with depression. You feel hopeless. And you're saying, this can't be life. This can't be fulfillment. This can't be what I'm called to. If you want to know what life is, Christ is life. 
So whatever we may experience in this life, Christ here and his words to his disciples of comfort, not only of the future which awaits all of us who have faith in Christ and eternal destiny, we are being told whatever we experience in this life, what we must be anchoring ourselves in is the person, Christ Jesus. When we've lost our way, he's the way. When we believed in lies, he's the truth. When we are dying inside, he is life. That's what we need to know. And when we grasp hold of that, and when the experiences and the tossed waves of this life come upon us, we are prepared to say, that's not the way. Christ is the way. That's a lie. Christ is the truth. That's not life. That's not happiness. That's not blessing. Christ is. Christ is the way home. Is the way home for all of us. The way home for those who are near and the way home for those who are far off. And the last thing that Christ says in our passage this morning as he concludes it is that he calls his disciples to continued fellowship with God. He says, if you really knew me, you'd know my father as well. He's going to go on to explain more about what he means by that. But he says, from now on you do know him and you've seen him. Christ here calling his disciples to continued fellowship with God and that's the thing that I want to close with this morning. I'm calling us all to fellowship with God. Maybe you've never believed in Christ and God by his spirit is calling you in this moment to place true faith in his son to find a steady anchor in this storm-wrought world. Maybe you have placed faith in Christ, but you're wavering. You're wavering and you're, you're being tossed to and fro. You're, you're struggling in the storms of life. And God's calling out to you this morning through his word. And he's saying, cling to Christ. Put your hope, your faith, your trust in him. And those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. May we all find our way home. Amen. Christ, we thank you for these words. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that by your death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, you have purchased a dwelling place for us, a home for troubled hearts. We ask, Christ, to turn us away from all the things that may have caused us to wander from you, to turn us back to you. And we ask, dear Lord, that in all the storms and seas of this life, 
all the hardships that we may experience, we may cling to you and know that the day is coming. And you will come to get us and to bring us back with you that we may be where you are forevermore. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.